What a joyous occasion it is for us again, as has already been mentioned, to come together today, that things are as well with each of us as they are. Indeed, as we experience that degree of blessing, one of the interesting and powerful aspects of that is the capability of looking into the Word of God, and what a joyous day it is for that always, to include that as an uh, ordained and correct part of our worship. For the next few moments, I'd encourage you to think with me about rebellion both in heaven and on earth. In fact, as we begin that very lesson and think about some of the aspects of what it means to talk about rebellion, quite often we are far more comfortable thinking about rebellion as it relates to warfare between nations or individuals who rebel against some specified authority. And it's true, one can certainly think of that in that way, but that isn't the only way. For consider with me the rebellion that occurs so often in the Bible. Just by way of introduction, isn't it a fair statement to say that rebellion is a rather common theme and topic in the Word of God? In fact, at the very outset in Genesis 3, we there see that Adam and Eve choose to rebel against the authority of God by doing the very thing that God told them not to do. Perhaps this would be a good time then to just define rebellion. It means to oppose authority in any recognized form. Well, notice that Adam and Eve were under the form or under the authority of God, and he had told them not to partake of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they selected otherwise. They chose to do so, and as a result of that, they rebelled. But notice three chapters later, when the population of earth had grown sizably, right before, in fact, the character of Noah's flood, we remember that again, people had chosen to rebel. Notice that the very thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. And so in Genesis 6, verses 5 and following, again, man chose to rebel against the very nature, the authority, the command of God. Chapters and chapters later, what about Israel itself? We notice in Numbers 14, verse 9, On this occasion the children of Israel stood at the southern boundary of the promised land. They had reached that site in two years since their exodus from Egypt. However, when the spies came back, ten of them said, We cannot take that land. They are mightier than we. We are weaker than they. We are as grasshoppers before them. The cities are walled. It is in fact the land God promised, but we cannot take it. Have you ever noticed what Joshua and Caleb said to the group that was gathered on that occasion? They said, Rebel ye not against the God of heaven. The other ten were in rebellion, and Israel chose to rebel. And for that, they wandered 38 years longer in that wilderness than they needed to. We begin to see that rebellion was a consistent part of the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 36, here as Israel was on the verge of the Babylonian captivity, one more time to them, we notice in verses 14 to 17 of that chapter, God said, they have despised my prophets, they have ignored my words, they've rebelled against me. You see, man, it seems often chooses to rebel against God, doesn't he? These are just some Old Testament examples. What about the New Testament ones? We, of course, have not time to list near all of them, but just consider a few with me if you would. In Mark, the seventh chapter, from the very lips of our Lord Jesus in discussing the activities and the means by which things were done by some in his day, 
he said, Mark you well. For these do in fact replace the commandments of God with their own thinking, their own traditions, and hence they disregard my commands. They rebel against me. Can't you just hear the sadness echoed in the words of Jesus as he described those who did not exalt God's ways and his words as they ought to have and hence rebelled? That very thinking perhaps points us to the verdict at judgment. We've prayed earlier today and even discussed it in a way in our Bible class. You see, at judgment, Jesus, in, dis in discussing that facet and aspect, said these words in John 12, 48. He said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Lord, what verb did you use? Those that reject. Those that rebel against the character of the gospel, the nature of God's divine and appointed will, that very word will serve as their judge. They'll be judged by it in accordance to it. To say all that perhaps whets our appetite for what about other things we can say about rebellion. First, do we need to concern ourselves with rebellion still today? We shall find the answer to that to be a very strong and positive yes. But maybe to lead to that, may we learn something about how God deals with rebellion. We have hinted already at the character of those Old Testament examples and the New Testament ones as well, that God does not ignore it. But let's be more specific. Let's be more careful. How does he respond to rebellion to him? And we shall choose as our specific example to discuss that, rebellion in heaven. The very character, the very mention of that may sound strange, but may I submit to you there has been rebellion in heaven. Think with me about angels, if you would, for the next few moments. As you and I appreciate the character of what the Bible reveals to you and me, we learn that God at the outset in six days fashioned and created this universe and orchestrated the various things within it. In Exodus 20 verse 11 as well as Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we notice there that God majestically spoke things into existence and they took the form that was very good, Genesis 1.31. And all the while when that creation was completed, all the while it had the characteristics, it had the earmarks, if you will, of what God desired it to have. At that very time, can we not then easily say that amongst what God created was, of course, life in various forms. We know about animal life and plant life and human life on days 6, 5, and 3. But might we also note that there are some other hints in Scripture of other beings that God fashioned at that time. Perhaps at the very outset of that creation we, Nehemiah would tell us in Nehemiah 9 verse 6, as he boldly spoke about the nature of God's dealings in his creation, he said that God fashioned in his greatness the heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all the host of them. That would seem to easily include the various hosts of heaven being the angels as well. In the New Testament, consider the statement made by the inspired apostle Paul in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, where there he spoke about the fact that Christ as the Creator created and these things made for His purpose, for His will, but amongst that were principalities and thrones and dominions and powers things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth. 
That would again seem to include the various hosts and beings that organize the nature of heaven. That would include those angels. They too were fashioned, made by God, if you will. But as one thinks about them, is it not also easy to state that rebellion occurred in heaven at some point? The very thought of that perhaps is difficult for you and me to fully fathom. Here were beings in the very presence of God. It's not that they lived at a distance from Him. They were in His very presence. They appreciated His bidding. They understood the character of His law and will in heaven. But nonetheless, they chose to rebel. Consider some of the statements Jesus even made concerning these angels of heaven. We might easily recall Matthew 22 verse 30. When on that occasion as he addressed the Sadducees, he made reference to the angels of heaven. Or just a few chapters later in Matthew 24 verse 36, that these angels of heaven. Thus Jesus stated that there were apparently many of them. He used the plural word. In fact, wasn't it the Hebrew writer who stated that there is an innumerable number of them? Apparently there's more than what can be numbered in terms of the actual recognition of the array of them. Hebrews chapter 12 informs us. We're beginning to understand a bit more about these angels, large in number. Furthermore, they were being subject to some divine law. However, notice with me the text that was read earlier this morning. In Jude, that single New Testament book, having just one chapter, if you will, in terms of the second to the last one from the New Testament, notice in verses 7, 8, and 9, we read about there where angels, these created beings, were such that they have a specified rank or a position. Notice again the language of verse 6 with me. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation. And that very thought rushes us to perhaps consider that more fully. There were some angels, again, with a specified dwelling place, a specified abode, that is, a station. They were beneath and character of authority in heaven. But Jude informs us that they kept not their first estate. In other words, they were not satisfied with the position which God had given them. They were not satisfied with the various characteristic of where they were to be, the job they were to do, the location they were to then dwell, dwell in. As such, Jude says, they kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. We immediately perceive then that these angels who chose to so act, were such that they rebelled against the will of God. They rebelled against the very God whom, in whom they were present. A startling thought, isn't it? Here we have rebellion amongst the ranks of heaven. How did God respond to it? In what way did He react to it? Well, let's continue to consider some more features and facts. What else might we say about this? I've listed a few thoughts for your consideration there on, on the screen, on the wall to my left. Notice it in 2 Peter 2 verse 4, a sister passage to this one. Peter makes note of the fact that the angels that sinned were not spared. And thus these rebellious angels were guilty of sin. They violated the law of heaven. 
God's law, wherever it exists, when it's violated, that constitutes sin, doesn't it? For 1 John 3 verse 4 informs us that whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law. These angels violated the law of heaven for their, for their jurisdiction, for their recognition. To note that is to note this. They sinned. They rebelled. They chose not to keep their initial habitation, their initial station. It would appear from the scriptures that the leader of that rebel bunch, the leader of the one who was ahead or in fact guiding and leading this insurrection of heaven, was none other than the devil himself, the one we now call Satan. Notice some of these texts in Matthew 25, verse 41. Jesus, as he described the nature of the judgment, stated that there's a place called hell that's made for the devil and his angels. It would appear from that language that he's the leader of that group, that he is the one who is ahead of or who promotes or who is behind the, the insurrection. But what's more, consider the Revelation writer John, who in chapter 12 of that great book identified for us the following scheme. I'd invite you to read with me just a few of the verses from Revelation 12. Even though it's true that the book of Revelation is a book that is filled with imagery and symbolism, and even though there are many things that obviously are not literal, it would appear that though this too is a representative that has a double meaning, it was an occurrence that happened in heaven, but it also has a great lesson for us today. But let's consider it from the perspective of its history. Beginning in verse 7 of Revelation 12, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And thus, maybe by appreciation, we see that this rebellion did occur. Its leader was such that as Satan was that person ahead of this, or that being ahead of it, we're now ready to ask in what way God responded. We have seen it already they were cast out of heaven. God didn't tolerate rebellion. He not for a moment put up with the character of this rebel Satan, if you will, but rather cast him out in Second Peter 2 informs us that this one is held in change in everlasting darkness for the judgment of the great last day. In other words, God's verdict was swift and it was severe. He didn't tolerate rebellion, did he? To say all that perhaps again returns us to one of the questions we ask at the outset. What about rebellion today? Does he react as swiftly and as severely as he did then? And if so, should we take that as a dire warning? Always to make sure that we are not in a state of rebellion against his will. Consider these thoughts with me as we move to the second consideration in our lesson this morning. Indeed, there is rebellion on earth, and it's frequent, isn't it? But I say that to say this, isn't it true that once God dealt with that rebellion in heaven, apparently there no longer is any rebellion there? For Jesus was able to pray in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Apparently at this current time, God's will is completely pursued in the halls of heaven, 
because the rebels have been cast out. They are no longer present. Jesus prayed that things on earth might be done so as in accordance to God's will as they currently are in heaven. That would, of course, make earth a pristine and paradisical spiritual place, wouldn't it? But to think about rebellion on earth, let's retrace what we've studied previously. We noticed there were angels subject to a divine law, and when they rebelled against that, they were guilty of sin. Man is subject to a divine law as well. There is a law in place for the human family today. That law, of course, is the law of Christ housed in the words of the gospel. For wasn't it true that Paul expressly said in Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2 that he was subject to the law of Christ? In 1 Corinthians 9 21, a similar recognition made about the law of Christ, the one to which you and I are subject. Maybe we could summarize that in Hebrews 9 verses 16 and 17. When there the inspired Hebrew writer made note of the fact that where there's death, there must of necessity be the death of him that made it the death of the testator. Jesus, our Savior, was the testator and since He is now dead, in a sense He died on the cross, He put in place this last will and testament that is still in force. Thus there is a law in place. And thus any time and anywhere that men rebel against that law, they are rebelling against God. They are in a position of insurrecting against His will. What a severe case to be in. Now let's go to the next part of that journey. We notice that when the angels sinned, God dealt swiftly with them and punished them powerfully. Consider the case, though, of you and me when sin occurs on earth. Those angels, as such in heaven, they had the opportunity, of course, to fully be in agreement with the will of God. And there are many, no doubt, still in heaven who are in that case and in that position. In the same way, men are invited to obey God's law today. You and I have access to the wonderful way of God and consider the invitation that Jesus uttered in Matthew 11. The last three verses of that chapter, He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That invitation, thus, is not just for a few. It is for all men. Didn't Paul say in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 that God would have all men to be saved and to come into a knowledge of the truth? Didn't Peter state in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 that God is not, that He's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? It is God's desire for all men to come to know His will and to fully obey it and to never rebel against it. But notice the invitation is left to you and me. You and I can choose to respond to it in a variety of ways. Some will gladly accept it. I noted for our consideration Acts 2 verse 41. On the day of Pentecost, what was said about the 3,000, the approximate number, who responded in faith to the preaching of Peter, it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And thus there are those who gladly re react and gladly respond to that which God has given. But there are also those who, of their own free will, choose to reject it. And thus they are in rebellion against God. I listed for your thinking Matthew 10 verse 14. And also one of the episodes in Acts chapters 13 and 14. 
A very interesting statement is made in those two places. In fact, if I just mention it, you'll know immediately what I'm speaking of. The reference is to those who would shake the dust off their feet and move on elsewhere. The first instance was the limited commission. Jesus said, you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To those that will hear you, you preach and you stay there. But to those that won't, you shake the dust off your feet and you move on to an audience that's more attentive and eager for the blessing of what you have to say. When Paul and Barnabas are on the first missionary journey, same thing, when they came to the cities of Antioch and Lystra and others, they too found that there was an audience so angry and so antagonistic that they shook the dust off their feet and they moved on. You see, there are those who choose to rebel and God will let men do that. He doesn't force His will upon us anywhere. He invites us. He pleads with us to obey. But He leaves a decision to you and me. So far, we've seen an interesting set of parallels. The angels had choices and those that chose to rebel were punished. Man has choices. What about those who choose to rebel? In our hearing earlier was read for us examples from the book of Jude. As we look at that somewhat interestingly, I would ask you to think with me about some other examples of how God dealt with spiritual rebellion. We have listed some already. We know, for instance, that because man rebelled, God sent a global flood that we've been studying about on Sunday morning. And that flood, of course, destroyed and caused to perish all that were not aboard that ark. But consider also the following. What about the chapter known as Numbers 16? There you might recall that there were three individuals living amongst Israel. They were the leaders of a group that chose to rebel against Moses and Aaron, the chosen ones whom God had selected to lead Israel. And thus these that rebelled were rebelling against really the authority of God. How did God react? Did He tolerate it? Did He ignore it? He did not. You might remember that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were severely punished. In fact, they were killed. The earth opened up and swallowed them. God doesn't look lightly upon rebellion. He didn't in heaven, and He doesn't on earth. Consider yet another example. As we turn back the scene to Jude, let us notice three examples that are found here. Let me read them again for your consideration. Let's read them one verse at a time. First, Jude verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. God issued His will and His plan to the children of Israel, did He not? He, in fact, with a powerful, mighty, and outstretched arm, delivered them from their Egyptian oppressors. He led them through dry ground in terms of the Red Sea, and He marched them toward the promised land of Canaan. This group had seen His miraculous ways. They had witnessed water on each side of the Red Sea as they passed through on dry land. However, Jude notes for us that He saved the people out of the land of Egypt but he afterward destroyed the ones that believe not. In other words, there's a tremendous demand for steadfastness and continued faithfulness. These that were once saved afterward were destroyed. They came out of Egypt and hence understood a measure of salvation. However, they never lived to see the promised land. 
They were destroyed on the way. Their carcasses were strewn across that wilderness because they had not believed the Lord. That very scene mentioned by Jude takes us back to Numbers 13 and 14. The spies that we mentioned earlier today. When the spies were sent out and they spied out the land and the twelve of them came back, they had the opportunity to respond in obedient faithfulness and trusting in God and to enter into that land then. God would have led them through victoriously without question. However, when they unbelieved, when they reacted in unbelief, Jude says God destroyed them. Out of the 603,550 fighting men that left Egypt, only two entered the promised land. Two out of that large number. You see, when they rebelled against God, they were punished. Sounds very much like the angels, doesn't it? God does not tolerate rebellion. To this group of Israelites who had the privilege of entering Canaan, they were then destroyed. They'd never lived to see that promised land. But notice, that's only one example of this group. Verse number 6 is the very example that has been the centerpiece of our lesson this morning. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Jude, what are you saying? These angels at once resided in heaven. Of course, the best of all possible places to be. They were in the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, and then the Son was there. They had access to all things spiritual and powerful, and yet, and yet, they chose to exalt themselves in pridefulness, and as such, they rebelled against their station, their given position. And notice Jude says, they have been reserved in everlasting change in darkness, awaiting the punishment of the last day. Does God ignore rebellion? He does not. Does God neglect it or overlook it? Never does He do so. Two examples we've seen that encourage us in matters of faithfulness. You see the children of Israel again. Though once saved, many of them became lost. In terms of the angels all in heaven at one point, but those that rebelled held in chains of darkness awaiting punishment. What about example number three? Notice the last one, verse number 7. Mention is now made that takes us back to Genesis, the 19th chapter. Here the scene is of Sodom and Gomorrah, who, though at one time apparently was a far more faithful city, we notice that they had given themselves over to sexual sin. They had turned themselves over, though once knowing better, to a lifestyle that was so very opposed to the will and law of God. And we well remember what happened. Did God ignore their rebellion? He didn't. Ultimately, only three escaped the city, Lot and his two daughters. You see, God rained fire and brimstone on those cities, punishing them because of their rebellion against His will. To say all of this is perhaps to say this. You and I have noticed in this text of Jude, we may be tempted to think of rebellion in the sense of, again, armies that fight against each other and people who openly wield guns and swords and bayonets. And it's true that when men fight on a battlefield, that may be the kind of rebellion that they are involved in. But what about the case of Israel? That scene in Numbers and the scene in Jude 5, were they fighting? Is that what the rebellion was? 
Of course not. That rebellion was refusal to obey the command of God. Refusal to trust and believe in Him. What about those angels? Well, the Revelation writer had said there was war in heaven. They chose not to maintain the status of their first estate. They, in fact, lifted themselves up, not unlike what Korah, Dathan, and Abiram had done on earth. And God punished them swiftly and severely. And finally, the scene of Genesis 19 where similar things took place. To summarize and to wrap that part up, would you think with me of some concluding thoughts about rebellion today and the seriousness with which we must think about this? For after all, it is still true that God deals always swiftly and severely with rebellion. He did so in heaven. He did so in past days on earth. And He will continue to do so as well. He does not overlook it. Isn't it then a tragedy when there are some whom you and I may know who perceive sin as such a light thing? It's not that important. It's not that big a deal. If you and I could ask those angels, I'd say they'd say a different story, wouldn't you think? It is a big deal. When we rebel then by refusing to trust and follow the orders of God and His will, the gospel age, when we rebel against that, we align ourselves with a rather motley crew of those throughout history who have met with dire and severe consequences. Perhaps Romans 11:22 is an appropriate verse at this point. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. Oh, how wonderful it is to think of the goodness of God, but how remarkable it is to consider His severity. And thus, may you and I always so live in a fashion to never rebel against Him, but to take His words at their face value, and to trust that they're true and correct, and to model our life by what they say. Isn't it true that a thus saith the Lord is the critical guiding light for my life and yours? Indeed, when we do that which He has said, we are not rebels, but rather we are praised as followers of Him, disciples and learners, which leads us to one of our last thoughts for, for this morning. In the 25th chapter of Matthew, we have a glaring scene about what will, shall be the final end of those who rebel. It is true that as you and I look about upon the earth today, we see many who rebel against God. They have less than interest that one can describe in terms of the Bible. They have no interest in the Christ. They seem to have no desire daily to follow His will, but yet they live and they prosper and they seem to do well. But all the while, the Bible warns us that's only temporary. For you see, this life is but a vapor. A little while and it's over, James 4.13, and then what shall therein be? If judgment begin at the house of God, 1 Peter 4.17 what about those that obey not the gospel? And with that, let's close our lesson this morning. Have you obeyed the gospel? If you've reached that age of knowing right from wrong but have not, you're in rebellion. Not to me or to the elders here per se, but to God. You so far have neglected, you have ignored, you've turned your back upon His offering of salvation. You need to make that right today. You see, you aren't promised tomorrow. None of us are but rather you can live right today. If you thus have never obeyed the gospel initially, realize that rebellion is treated harshly and thus you need not rebel. Believe upon the Lord for He commanded it, Romans 10, 14. 
upon that belief. Repent of the sins in your life, Luke 13, 5. Trust in Him with all your heart. Make a verbal confession that He's the only begotten Son of God, Acts 8, 37. And then be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2, 38. If we could help you do that today, we'd be happy to do it. If you have become a Christian in days past, but like those Israelites who though once saved, maybe you have again wandered into being lost because you've rebelled. Come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5, and He will again shower you with more blessings than heaven can number. Malachi 3, verse number 8. If we could help you today in your obedience publicly to the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, rebel no longer, but won't you come even now while together we stand and while we sing.